You know what? I was wondering the other day. Oh, we back. What yeah, do we got? We back. You know what I was wondering? Good to see you, Daniel. <laughs> Good to see you as well. Thank you. Dr. Cody J. Chinchilla. Nice, nice Bayless. Wow. Yeah. And also unto the... And unto the uh, good day. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, what is your favorite type of coffee? Coffee? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, there's two options here. If two? Going just the, two? Yeah. Well, there are lots of options, yeah. but for me, there are two of my favorites. One, plain Americano. Just straight up? Straight up Americano. Black. Yep. Two shots. Um, or if I'm doing drip coffee, it's got to be a French roast. French roast? French okay. roast. Yeah. yeah. Drip? Drip. Parlez-vous Francois? Yeah. Is that how they say it? Yeah. And do you speak French? Nope. <laughs> Not at all. But I like to uh, say toi and du <laughs> and le bleu. I like to say those words in French. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What about for you, my friend? I guess maybe not the coffee thing, but what about, uh, what's your favorite yeah. white? You know, if you had to do one pastry. Oof. I know this is going to be a thing. Oh. I see the gears turning. Yeah. I see you going through the process I mean, of elimination. there's just too many variables. Like what time of day? What yeah. region of the world? Yep. Let's say, like, is the what pastry from? What was my from? meal the previous day? Yeah. Wow. It's <laughs> a lot of variables to take into account. Is it, uh, what season of the year is it? Okay. Is the weather congruent with what season it is? Okay. So, man, this is a lot of thinking. Um, I thought this would be like an easier question to answer, but I'll try to paint like maybe a scenario. Okay. Let's say it's 1 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. It's uh-huh. spring outside. It's a little bit breezy, about 50 degrees. Um, and you are in Flagstaff, Arizona. I'm not sure what you ate the day before. Oh, yeah. Probably some croissant. candy. Oh, glazed croissant. Yeah, easy. Okay. <laughs> Nailed it. All right, man. Well done. Well, that was super easy. Yeah. Nailed it. That was really fast. Man, okay. Yeah. There you go, my friend. Yeah. That was good to find out. I was really surprised how quickly you arrived at glazed croissant. I just need the variables. Making decisions easy. Yeah. Acquiring all the necessary information to make the decision is the difficult part. That's the difficult part. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I forgot some variables, but we'll just stick with Glaze Croissant for now. Okay. Yeah. And so we encourage all of, this, all of our listeners to go grab a Glaze Croissant and an Americano and uh, kick their feet up. And what are we going to talk about? Dang, we should probably just call this and go do that. <laughs> That's what you want to do now? <laughs> How do you say it? That sounds all right. Uh, we got eco psychology on the books today. Uh, such of a, a good topic. Kind of a fun one. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, before we jump in, I think it's important to mention that we're going to be given a very broad view mm-hmm. of eco psychology today. So we're not going to go too in depth on any one thing, but through a very Western lens. Through a very Western lens is another part that would be important to consider. Yeah. So a broad view through a Western lens. But yep. you and I were talking about this. I think it gives an entry point into many other subtopics that are really cool to explore. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that'll happen down down the road. Mm-hmm. We might have some various episodes that uh, spin off of this. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. We'll see. Yeah. Who knows? We're pretty good at keeping our words. So <laughs> probably not. Yeah. So why don't you jump in? What What is eco-psychology? I'm, I'm, I'm eager to learn from you. This is a little bit more of your specialty, so. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll jump in. I think uh, just kind of set an outline. We'll start with some definitions. Start with what is eco-psychology and kind of go into a why. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So there's a couple definitions I want to start with. The first one is straight from the American Psychological Association, Division 34, which is the Society for Environmental Population and Conservation Psychology. And they just simply say that eco-psychology explores human psychological interdependence with the rest of nature and the implications for identity, health, and well-being. Eco-psychology topics include emotional responses to nature, the impacts of environmental issues such as natural disasters and global climate change, and the transpersonal dimensions of environmental identity and concern. Oh, yeah. So even those examples uh, provide forays into a lot of subtopics that would hold a lot of value. Totally, yeah. There's a lot of different directions, a lot of things that go into eco-psychology. Um, and then the other the other definition I wanted to include is written from a person named Andy Fisher, who's also had a lot to contribute in the field of eco-psychology. His definition for eco-psychology is an interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary field that focuses on the synthesis of ecology and psychology in the promotion of sustainability. Ah, so includes uh, sustainability in there. Yeah, yeah, which a lot of times in the eco-psychology you'll see... Um, sustainability as being a main factor or a main topic of that. Okay. Sometimes you'll see the term used interchangeably with conservation psychology, huh. which I thought would also be good to define. Um, and then that, that's defined as the scientific study of the reciprocal relationships between humans and the rest of nature with the goal of encouraging conservation of the natural world. So then what's what's the difference between conservation psychology and eco-psychology? Yeah, a lot of times, again, you'll see them used interchangeably and they'll be referenced in very similar ways. Eco-psychology, sometimes the word that you'll see pop up more is sustainability. And the word that you'll see pop up more with conservation psychology is conservation. Mm. Yeah, so conservation mm-hmm. of the natural world. Mm-hmm. And uh, sustainability and eco-psychology would be used to like what processes are humans developing in the relationship with the natural world that are healthy. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be kind of a quick and dirty definition Mm -hmm. from uh, APA society or division 34. And then also Andy Fisher, and then kind of just dip in toes into conservation psychology. Yeah. Importantly, I think uh, many of our longtime listeners would be curious as to, did you check the urban dictionary for a definition of eco psychology? I did not. What if I do that real quick, though? Let's see. Okay. Yeah. So urbandictionary.com, the source of all things knowledge, <laughs> eco-psychology. <laughs> Sorry we couldn't find eco-psychology. No urban D oh, for eco-psychology. Really kind of heartbreaking. That's a teary face emoji. Mm-hmm. Well, that's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. So that's the definitions. Unfortunately, we're going to have to uh, not include anything from the urban dictionary today. Okay. So then, yeah, how did how did eco-psychology come to be? Yeah, very cool. So I think next we could give a brief history of eco-psychology. The question that comes up for me is why in eco-psychology? Mm-hmm. Um, what is the need for this type of approach in the field of psychology in general? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I would go far back. I would go Descartes and dualism. Oh, the homie, Rene. Rene. Do you think you give us a rundown on Rene? Descartes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Here we go. Buckle. <laughs> Buckle up. Let's go. You know, you know what's going to get me on soapboxes. Oh, man. I know. This, this one is of like them. a softball. It's no good to Dualism. Long. Yeah. Dualism. So, yeah. I mean, Rene, in actuality, when I learned a lot about it, and I think we addressed aspects of this in some previous episodes, but. Um, so this is just going off the top of my head, but uh, there's an interesting aspect to it that it, it provided science to grow what what Rene introduced philosophically, but essentially he separated the mind from the body, 
or the spirit from the body. So he, he, he compared the body to like a mechanism or a machine. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, it demystified the body, which allowed science to study the body. But it created a dualism between what is spirit or mind and what is then the body, which is seen as a mechanism or mechanistic, mm-hmm. as if it's a machine, as if it's devoid of spirit. Voila. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, if we extend this out, then I think this is where you're going, but you, you tell me. Yeah, I'm with you. Is if we extend that out, then essentially if we use what I just said about the body and the mind or spirit as comparative or analogous to the planet, that essentially the flora and fauna on the planet become the mechanisms or the machines that exist. We can just look at those as commodities. We demystify those and devoid, we see those things as devoid as having like a spirit or an entity separate and distinct to themselves or interconnected as a whole. Yes. Blammo. Yes, absolutely. So uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when we were thinking about dualism and Descartes. And then why in eco-psychology essentially, I think if we were to pose the question, what issues exist in society today that are contributors to maybe mental health factors yeah. or mental health. Yeah. I think we can look back at all of these systems that have been created and there's a philosophical underpinning of dualism. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, so the way I think about what I understand you be saying is like the planet and what's the, what's on the planet can be viewed as resources and commodified. Yeah. And so if we think about something like Glen Canyon dam, when we looked at the river, it was like, how can we access this river to commodify it and not see it as part of an interconnected part of us that we need to interact and engage with that has kind of an entity or a spirit of its own. And we need to operate in reciprocity. Instead, we can like see it as something separate from us. We Mm -hmm. can see it as something that is a resource and then commodify it Mm -hmm. and then make decisions based on that. And those decisions may have consequences that we pay a price for, even though very indirectly, we end up compromising our own selves. Blammo. Yeah. So in that, right, like to, to, I think you're using the word demystify, right? Like I think the idea is that essentially through this philosophy, in order to produce systems of living uh, that are popular and have a lot of power now, it Mm -hmm. essentially took the soul out of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so then it became a resource or a commodity. Okay. In doing so, we've really lost a connection or lost a relationship. Okay. So then at least a question for me then, um, with this being something you have more expertise with, does that, when eco-psychology is spoken about in a history, do they start with Descartes or are you just referencing, are you, did you make this connection for like, how did eco-psychology come to be? And then we have this history of the earth being, being commodified or is it referenced this way? Right. So in the history um, that I've read related to eco-psychology, I haven't seen that connection, but I've listened to some other things, particularly what comes uh, to mind is like liberation eco-psychology okay. um, it, that have made that connection. Okay. And so I think also when we've kind of looked at that field um, and looked at people as a whole, um, it often comes back to dualism in the systems that have been created out of that. Oh, okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gracias. Thanks uh, for uh, lobbing that softball. Yeah, Love de, it. De nada, amigo. I always enjoy throwing a softball over the plate for Dunny. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think when we answer the question of why in eco-psychology, people who are psychologists began to look at the field of ecology, were inspired by ecology and saying that there's a missing relationship or connection that is producing a lot of human suffering. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that 
When was Descartes, man? That's a while ago. Like 1600s, I believe, but I, that's like off the top of my head again. Okay, so that's like more than 50 years. <laughs> it's almost like more. You did introduce this as a brief history, and then you were like, what about Descartes? And I was like, huh. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, so that philosophy is a long time ago. Freud yeah. in 1929. I was just going to reference him briefly. Oh, book. we got Freud in we here, got too. Freud, man. Uh, yeah, we're slipping. This is my favorite episode. All the homies, yeah. Um, 1929, Civilization and Its Discontent. Yeah. Discontents. Yeah. Um, just to briefly mention here, Freud wrote a book about the tensions between the individual and society and the pressures to conform to that. Yeah. Which, which, um, here we go. Just as an aside, yes. if you think about the parallel process between the publication date of that book, what's going on in society just prior to the Great Depression. So mm. it's the swinging 20s, right? Yeah. It's, uh, Hitler's going to come to rise in a few years. Yeah. So society has these very solidified structures or this very free-willing, free-willing uh, right. way of being or performing. Yeah. Come on. Parallel, yeah, pr- parallel process. Parallel right process of play right there. Come on. Um, so yeah, the reason I want to highlight Freud real quick in that book is he speaks to the tension that exists between individuals and society and conformity. And as these systems that have been put into place kind of based on the philosophy of dualism have gained power, there was more pressure to conform to these systems, which drove that wedge further between the relationship of people and the planet. Yeah. So it leads to this like internalized distress that's occurring on a subconscious level about what ways do I not feel congruent with what feels natural and organic? Yeah. Yeah. Voila. And society is producing structures that create that barrier and increase that barrier. Increase it. Exactly. Yeah. So eco-psychology, there was a term that became known as psychoecology, mm-hmm. which kind of lost its popularity, got kind of used against hippies and that sort of thing. And this was in the, <laughs> this was in the early hating on the hippies? I'm not hating on the hippies. I'm just saying this term came about and people used it against hippies, which I thought was kind of funny, referring to them as psychoecologists. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of funny. And it was like a demeaning term. Yeah, it was like a demeaning term for like earth lovers and hippies and that sort of thing. Yeah. So this was in the early 1960s. The field of eco-psychology really isn't even that old. It sort of gets traced more to this time as the early 60s. It wasn't until the early 90s that it actually became termed eco-psychology, though. Mm. So there's an, uh, an important name, Robert Greenway. Um, in the 60s, who termed the that, that term psychoecology. And so the origins can be traced back to him in a lot of ways. Fun fact about him is that he was a writer for Abraham Maslow. Oh. Yeah, kind of fun fact, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he wrote a, uh, he termed this the, the field psychoecology in 1963 in an essay that he wrote at Brandeis University in Boston. That same year, he became the founding dean of Franconia College in the mountains of New Hampshire and continued to explore the relationships between humanistic psychology and the farther reaches of human nature. Um, as that unfolded, he began teaching courses in psychoecology and the nascent field of transpersonal psychology at Sonoma State. Um, and then 20 years would pass before his research would rise to national attention through the efforts of Elon Shapiro, who was one of uh, Greenway's graduate students. In the late 80s, and this is kind of where things really picked up, is in the late 80s in Berkeley, but there was a discussion group that began to meet every other week. And this included some famous names, um, which included Mary Gomes, Alan Canner, Fran Siegel, and then a person named Theodore Rozak, who is the most responsible for what we know as the field of eco-psychology now. Like the contemporary form of it? Yeah, exactly. So those discussion groups were really just these people kind of chatting it up in Berkeley 
having conversations about ecology, philosophy, psychology. And then in early 1992, Theodore Rozak wrote this book called Voices of the Earth, which was kind of the like launching of this field of eco-psychology, mm. I would say. Mm. And in that, he expands greatly upon the theory and also penned eight principles of the discipline of eco-psychology. Okay. So the current form of it, he he has like these eight principles. They're kind of like the backbone of the contemporary idea of eco-psychology. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they're pretty deep. <laughs> like it's hard to try to like um, narrow these down into succinct versions, I would say. But they're like, there's a lot to unpack in the eight principles. So he took super nuanced concepts and yeah. uh, created just eight simple principles from those. Eight simple principles, really easy, closer, closer all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so I thought maybe we could ping pong, ping pong back and forth. Yeah. Or do you want me to go through these eight principles? I think I see them here. Okay. So I'll give them a shot. I, this is, this is um, content I'm not super familiar with, so I'm excited to, to explore it. Yeah, well, we can kick it back and forth a little bit. The first principle really to, to kind of boil it down is the core of the mind is the ecological unconscious. And so he would say repression of the ecological unconscious is the deepest root of collusive madness in industrial society. So I think in that statement, what we find is the division that we've created essentially between people and planet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which has been used to build essentially create yeah. an industry to build and which, which makes the barrier larger and larger. Right. So yeah. it's a, it's like a growing barrier, a growing Correct. Yeah. Chasm. Yep. That needs to be crossed. Cross that chasm. Shout Hashtag out crossing that chasm. <laughs> uh, number two. So the second principle is the contents of the ecological unconscious represent and keep the living record of evolution dating back to the beginning of time. Okay. So this is like uh, that within our biology is the understanding of evolution. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Exactly. So in that, all the way back to the beginning of time that that record is kept within the natural world. Yeah. <laughs> like in subconscious realms, like, uh, it's all just there, yeah. uh, kind of intuitively and we can sense it. We not always consciously aware of it or obviously not consciously responding to it. Yeah, for sure. So the way that he'd speak to it is that the ordered complexity of nature tells us that life and mind emerge from this evolutionary tale as culminating natural systems within the unfolding sequence of physical, biological, mental, and cultural systems, which he refers to as the universe. Okay. Yeah. All right. Big concept. Big concept. In here, I think just briefly mentioned is uh, E.O. Wilson's biophilia hypothesis. And just to quickly point it out is that his whole hypothesis relates to the idea that we were naturally wired to connect with the natural world mm -hmm. as a product of evolving from the natural world. Okay. Yeah. So he would say all living beings, including the planet. So planet, animals, humans, we're all wired for connection in that sense. Okay. The third principle is that the goal of eco-psychology is to awaken the inherent sense of environmental reciprocity that lies within the ecological unconscious. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that brought up something there, huh? Ah, it just makes complete sense. Uh, yeah. Like uh, there's this internal drive to resolve that um, disparity, to get back to reciprocity, right? Totally. And so we won't really go into this today, but ecotherapy is sort of what's referred to as one of the tools to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and so what it seeks to do is heal the more fundamental alienation between people and the natural environment. Okay. And so that occurs subconsciously. People feel this uh, when they feel a distance from that connection. 
it may manifest in various ways and getting back in touch with that can resolve some of that conflict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number four, the crucial, crucial stage of development is the life of the child. Yeah. Ah, So you you have a sub point here. It says the ecological unconscious is regenerated as if it were a gift in the newborn's enchanted sense of the world. Eco-psychology seeks to recover the child's innately animistic quality of experience in functionally sane adults. To do this, it turns to many sources, among them the traditional healing technique of primary people, nature mysticism, as expressed in religion and art, and experiences of wilderness, the insights of the deep eco-ecology. It adapts these to the goal of creating the ecological ego. So it's like becoming uh, childlike in that uh, beginner's yeah. mind curiosity. Totally. I think of that. And I think of um, culture, like mm-hmm. culture really jumps into my mind with that and what gets created as a, as a part of like our own Genesis stories, um, beliefs that we have about the cosmos, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this attitude of curiosity and being like a child that really plays into that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like that one. That's a fun one, right? Yeah. The fifth one is the ecological ego matures toward a sense of ethical responsibility with the planet that is as vividly experienced as our ethical responsibility to other people. It seeks to weave that responsibility into the fabric of social relations and political decisions. So another point that you make here is that eco-psychology grows bigger than simply an individual's relationship to the planet, but communities, cultures, and lineages relationship to the planet as well. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so the sixth one, uh, chief among the therapy projects in eco-psychology is the re-evaluation of certain compulsivity, masculine character traits that permeate our structures of political power and drive to dominate nature as if it were an alien and sightless realm. In this, eco-psychology draws significantly on some insights from eco-feminism and feminist spirituality. This one also makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that domineering uh, characteristic of uh, masculinity, toxic masculinity or patriarchy that's uh, focused on uh, being domineering. Yeah. Yeah. um, And controlling. It's a counter response to that. So you you have a sub point here that says ecofeminism is an ideology that sees climate change, gender equality and social injustice more broadly as intrinsically related issues all tied to masculine dominance in society. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pretty good stuff, huh? Yeah, I think I think it could be important to say that here feminism and ecofeminism those theories um they use terminology that references gender and gender orientation or identity. But it's actually um, more commonly like the theory itself or the nuance of the theory is based on minority groups versus majority groups. Yeah. And so it's a response to making sure that or trying to build in equity that minority groups can have equal access to yeah. majority groups. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Equality is the principle of that. Equity mm-hmm. is the principle of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I think that was a really interesting point that they included in that. Again, this is the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So quite a bit ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Number seven, whatever contributed to small scale social reforms and personal empowerment nourished the ecological ego, whatever strives for large scale domination and the suppression of personhood undermines the ecological ego. 
this is a <laughs> kind of referring to industrial society earlier, but what they would say is that eco-psychology questions gargantuan urban industrial culture and whether that's either capitalistic or collectivistic in its nature. And what it does is it orients itself toward a post-industrial so- social orientation. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of an interesting point. So it kind of, it, for me, would really question sprawl. Mm-hmm. Like it would call that out. It would mm-hmm. call out the way in which we have built up mm-hmm. uh, our our societies on the natural or in the natural world. Which for me makes sense. Like if we if we're feeling greater and greater disconnect, should we look at the things that we're doing and say, "Hey, are these the right things to be doing?" Like it, this this goes back to things that we've talked about for quite a while. If we have these ever increasing rates of mental health, yeah, yeah the ways that we're approaching the way that we build society and culture. Um, contributing at all and so something like urban sprawl is that something actually provides a benefit or does it ultimately create a consequence yeah for sure one thing i remember kind of reading through this lens too is the idea that it's pretty amazing that humans have been able to do that like the capacity to create in that way like shouldn't be diminished or damned in a sense Mm -hmm. and in a way it should just also be questioned Mm -hmm. like let's look at this and what is the actual effect of this Mm -hmm. this process Mm -hmm. okay so number eight Yep. Uh, eco-psychology holds that there is a synergistic interplay between planetary and personal well-being. And then to further define the term synergy is, is that term's chosen deliberately for its traditional theological connotation, which once taught that the human and the divine are cooperatively linked in the quest for salvation. The contemporary ecological translation of the term might be the needs of the planet are the needs of the person and the rights of the person are the rights of the planet. Yeah. Yeah, This is where even unintentionally earlier in just what we were talking about a moment ago, uh, comparing the mind and the body to the earth and the spirit of the flora and fauna within the earth um, they become analogous. They're kind of one and the same. Yeah. One's a micro way to look at it. One's a macro. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just different scales and the needs are the same and the well-being interplay with one another. Yeah. Yeah. If humans are doing well, likely the planet is and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of brings to me the thought that Hobby Lobby is a corporation or as a corporation is mm-hmm. given legal rights. Mm-hmm. And it's surprising that things like water or rivers and yeah, river the doesn't have that. Yeah. Have not been given those same rights in a court of law. And there's a lot of philosophy that we could go down that road with. But for me, it's kind of like, what are the things that we value in that? Mm-hmm. And that gets lost And this, mm-hmm. this eighth principle, I think really speaks to that. If we step back from it, yeah, the rights of people ought to be the rights of the planet, vice mm-hmm. versa. Yeah. And so within a court system, right, we can create these entities that we say, this is an entity that is allowed to have a voice within this space, like a courtroom. Yeah. And then we can say to a river, this entity does not have a voice within this space in the courtroom. Totally. And further, we can say this entity was given power over this river to yeah. have a space within this courtroom. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which again, just to go back to the thing you spoke to earlier, Dan's like um, Descartes. And I think of like that being a direct product of that, right? Like mm-hmm. we've taken the soul out of that river, mm-hmm. we've taken the life out of that river. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what, what do we, oh, what, what do we do or what are, how do we apply these eight <laughs> principles? <laughs> what do we do? Uh, good question. What do we do? 
Yeah. Um, there's only one thing. No. Um, oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Yeah, there is one thing. So I thought at this point it'd be good. We covered those eight principles and then we could cover a little bit of Andy Fisher's work. He wrote a book called Radical Eco-Psychology, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun. And going through a video that he produced, um, I didn't know that the root word of the word radish or the root of the word radish and the root of the word radical are the same. Mm-hmm. And that by saying something is radical is actually going back to its root. Mm-hmm. That was a fun fact for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, they both uh, start with R A D. Yeah. And so does rad. Yeah. So right. like rad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if like something's rad, that's like the root. That's something. the root of it. Yeah. yeah. So like when you hear someone say radical compassion, it's going back to the root of yeah. compassion. And yeah. radical compassion starts with the same three letters as rad, as rad. As radish. As radish. Yeah. As <laughs> radical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pretty fun, huh? Yeah. Didn't know. Who knew? R-A-D. R-A-D. I thought it was just a radish, man. Just growing out that earth. But it's the root. It's the root. At any rate, um, coming back to Andy Fisher's idea. So he, he says there are three actions that we can take, or there are three tasks, rather, with actions or, uh, surrounding those. And the first is a psychological task. Task. The second is a philosophical task, and the third one is a practical task. Um, the psychological task essentially just says is to acknowledge and better understand the human nature relationship as a relationship <clears throat> and to continue to develop our understanding so it includes all matters of human psychology, spirituality, and experience as a part of the larger natural order and to comprehend our mental existence under a more, a more than human lens. So it's like uh, he's saying the psychological task is to come to view ourselves as part of something bigger than just ourselves. Yeah, okay. yeah, that relates to the philosophical one. And for me, when he says better understand is like to continue to develop research or use the field of science to bring knowledge and understanding to how that exists and what that looks like. And to and psychologically integrate that knowledge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that'll find its way into like the practical task a little bit. So philosophical task, he then says, is to place psyche and soul back into the natural world. Again, we we're talking about Descartes and the, the philosophy is sort of taking the soul out of the world. A dead and soulless world offers no intimacy. And out West, we've basically taken the soul out of the world and placed it squarely within humans. The world must be given a soul before we can form an intimate relationship with it. So we have this uh, philosophical task of essentially stepping back from our Mm -hmm. own selves, looking at systems, uh, systems of thought, systems of action, and then essentially looking at how do we, uh, from a thinking standpoint, from a from a philosophical standpoint, put the soul back in the world. Yeah, some of the way it's written there, I think it drifts back into cognition and thought, but uh, this is going to really shock you. It makes me think, ah, sometimes that exists not in cognition and thought, right? Sometimes that's the thing that we've talked about previously as well, and Colleen Cooley outlined so well when we met with her that um, being intuitively aware and sensing how you feel in an area uh, in relation to the nature around you is part of philosophically understanding your relationship to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Under, I think, yeah, bringing, bringing an understanding or like, um, a sensed felt lived experience yeah. of that relationship. I, I think drawing awareness to senses and intuition different than just focusing on the cognition and the yeah. thinking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which, which, uh, you commonly experience for me, right? I commonly push in that direction. <clears throat> yeah, you're very felt. Let uh, go of sense, thoughts. Let go, let go of thinking. Yeah. Rationality um, is not ne- needed. Yeah. Is is the term underthinking a thing? 
Yeah. I often promote underthinking. Yeah, I was going to say you're like a compulsive underthinker. (laughs) You know, some of the people that make me the happiest in the world are the people that seem to have put the least amount of thought into what they've said. Yeah. The third task. (laughs) Yeah, the third task is the practical task. The practical task. And so what Andy Fisher speaks to here is developing therapeutic and recollective practices uh, towards an ecological society. And so he speaks to the idea that science bombards with facts, reasons, and logic, and therapeutic practices can help understand the underlying ecological crisis with aim of relearning how to give back to, sustain mutual relationships in a world filled with a soul. Mm -hmm. So I think what we were just talking to as far as like tapping into senses, understanding there's a relationship that we have with the planet, taking action to restore that relationship. Yeah, it's really kind of a three-part process, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this. This has been a real learning experience for me. Yeah, day not, amigo. I know it's important to you to get in that Enneagram 5. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Acquiring knowledge. It's just <laughs> You got a big old grin right now. Oh, I'm so happy. Happy, yeah. happy, happy. No doubt. So again, just for our listeners, this is like the 30,000 foot view. Um, this might find its way into future episodes and that sort of thing. And uh, again, and part of just doing a quick and nerdy, there's a lot that we haven't covered as well. Yeah. What makes me really excited actually in saying that is um, I, I see both in our dialogue here and in the brief conversation we had before starting the recording, many different avenues to explore further the nuances of this. So yeah. I'm, I'm pumped. That may be part of my smile. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, come on. Future directions. Yeah. FDs. Why don't you take us out by shouting us out? No doubt. You can always find us on the interwebs. Technology, www.beyondflag.com. Flag spelled. F-L-G. And the Instagrams. We are out there. Stories every day. Every weekday. Stories on days. On Stories on days. Days on stories. Yeah. Beyond underscore flag. All right. Take care. Love you. Yeah. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> Got him. Okay. Oh, so. man. <laughs> Strangely, I feel like you're referencing our relationship here, huh? <laughs> I, I'm not actually. Do you, uh, no. do you think I'm critiquing you? No. no I'm just, just talking about the many, many rants that you have to listen to me go on. Oh, I love them, man. Yeah, it's my favorite. So, yeah, compulsive underthinking is a uh, a product of, uh, or a parallel with how Dan approaches the world, I'd say. Yeah, and a real value. Real value that I both espouse and admire. <laughs> Practice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>